I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today's episode highlights African-American constitutional visionaries. We'll explore their lives, legacies, and constitutional values from the fight for abolition to the civil rights movement. And I am joined by two of America's leading constitutional visionaries and great friends of the National Constitution Center. Uh, Professor Ted Shaw is Julius L. Chambers, Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the UNC Center for Civil Rights. He is the author of many works, including the introduction to the Ferguson Report of the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. He worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund for over 26 years and was its fifth director counsel. Uh, Professor Shaw, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Wonderful to be with you, Jeffrey. And Judge Ted McGee has been a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit since 1994. He served as chief judge from 2010 to 2016. His previous service includes work as a state trial judge, chair of the Pennsylvania Sentencing Commission, and an assistant U.S. attorney. And I'm thrilled that he has just joined the National Constitution Center Board of Trustees. Judge McGee, it is such an honor to have you with us. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, Jeff. Well, we are going to discuss great constitutional visionaries throughout history, and I want to begin with Frederick Douglass. Uh, Professor Shaw, what was Douglass's constitutional significance, and what should we, the people listeners, know about his constitutional legacy? Well, Frederick Douglass, of course, was one of the most famous Americans uh, of the 19th century. Uh, and uh, he was an escaped slave. Uh, he was an abolitionist. Uh, and during the Civil War, uh, he pressed President Lincoln, uh, and even before the Civil War, but certainly during the Civil War, uh, both with respect to allowing African-Americans to fight in the Civil War, uh, but also uh, I think he helped to move President Lincoln from his original position uh, in which he thought post-freedom, uh, Black Americans should be re, uh, uh, re-established uh, in, in Africa. Uh, he was someone who engaged with the Constitution. Uh, if you read his writings, if you read uh, his speeches, if you read the newspaper that uh, he established and ran for years as an abolitionist, uh, he engaged with the Constitution itself. Uh, he believed that the Constitution belonged not only to those who uh, were the original uh, uh, you know, creators of the Constitution, those who were the founding fathers, but he believed that it belonged to all Americans, and that included African Americans. Uh, most notably, I think, uh, Frederick Douglass made arguments about what should happen after freedom with respect to the uh, Constitution. He believed in enfranchisement of Black Americans, uh, and he believed in equality. Uh, so uh, he was, in a sense, uh, a, in a real sense, uh, one of the second founders uh, of our nation. Uh, and uh, he advocated for interpreting the Constitution uh, in a way that uh, bent it toward freedom. Thank you so much for those inspiring words. Uh, Frederick Douglass celebrated his birthday on February 14th, so we can offer those thoughts in honor of his birthday. And you're so right to stress that he thought all Americans were included in the Constitution and emphasized what came after. In our Civil War exhibit on Reconstruction, we have a passage where when Douglas read Madison's notes saying that the Constitution was not meant to recognize property in man, it changed the way he thought of himself as a person and as a citizen and convinced him that the slavery was not, that the Constitution was not a pro-slavery document. I should have said that he also uh, believed in equality for women. That's a crucial uh, part of his legacy, and I will ask you more about that when we talk 
about some of the great women visionaries as well. Judge McKee, you've heard uh, Professor Shaw's introduction to Frederick Douglass. Why do you think Frederick Douglass is constitutionally significant? He was very instrumental uh, in the um, debates surrounding particularly the 13th Amendment. He engaged with Elizabeth Candy uh, Staten, uh, who was a woman's rights uh, suffragette, as you know, a, a real proponent for the women's right to vote. There was tension there in terms of how the 13th Amendment would be drafted. Should it include not only the right of former enslaved people to vote, but should it also include the right of women's suffrage? Stanton and a number of suffragettes thought that it was absolutely necessary for the 13th Amendment to include the right of women um, to vote in outlawing slavery. Lincoln, uh, I'm sorry, Douglas disagreed with that. As a matter of strategy, he thought, look, if we include both, we barely have enough support here to get former slaves, men, former male slaves the right to vote. If we put on top of that language, which includes extending the right to vote to women, we're going to lose the whole thing. And so as a matter of strategy, he advocated that the right to vote, which was enshrined in the Civil War amendments, be limited to freed slaves, male free slaves, obviously, but not because he believed that women should be excluded from the right to vote, but simply as a matter of, of um, a strategy. He engaged with Lincoln, uh, as Professor Wallace has mentioned, in terms of world's views of, of black folks. He, uh, Douglas, realized that Lincoln had believed that Lincoln did not see blacks as the social equal uh, of whites because of the Lincoln support for the American Colonization Society, which, as is, is, um, Professor Wells alluded to, wanted to see freed blacks be t- removed from the United States. But Lincoln thought that he could never, I'm sorry, I keep confusing the two names. Douglas, nevertheless, thought it was important to uh, to work with um, with Douglas around, with Lincoln around this issue. In fact, um, he made the statement when he was criticized with working not only with Lincoln, but with uh, former slave owners. Douglas's response was, well, look, I will work with anyone to achieve the common good, and I'll work with no one insofar as it advances the common evil or the common bad. So in that sense, and it may see echoes of contemporary politics here, he very much advocated working at common purpose to achieve a common goal, even if it meant working with and uniting with people who might otherwise you have very fundamental disagreements. So just to add one thing quickly to this. The uh, Emancipation Memorial in Washington, D.C., which receives some notoriety lately, which depicts the statue depicting a uh, naked, um, in the statue, a black slave rising from his knees, but he's kneeling at the, at the knee of Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, Douglas gave a speech um, in 1876 when that memorial was dedicated. And what he said there was that he expressed his dissatisfaction for the statue. He said, the Negro here, though rising, is still on his knees and nude. He wrote, what I want to see before I die is a monument representing the Negro, not conchant on his knees like a four-footed animal, but erect on his feet like a man. And he was just an eloquent spokesman for the dignity, not only of black folks only, but of, of women as well and for, for all people, and for fighting for that concept to be ingrained within the Civil War um, uh, amendments. Both of you have mentioned the connection between uh, Douglas's fight for rights for African-American men to vote and women's suffrage. And the next pair that I want to introduce is Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells. Both were heroes who fought uh, against uh, the stain of slavery as well as fighting for the enfranchisement of women. Professor Shaw, what can you tell our listeners about Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells? Harriet Tubman, of course, was uh, someone who fought against slavery, was one of the leading voices against slavery. Uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, along with Sojourner Truth, uh, were two women who played one of the most and some of the most important roles in the struggle to uh, end slavery. Ida B. Wells, uh, in her time, a journalist, uh, someone who was uh, very active uh, against uh, lynching, uh, and violence against African-Americans 
Um, these were uh, great Americans. Um, I, I should say to go back to uh, Frederick Douglass for a moment and uh, his work uh, on behalf of uh, women's rights. Uh, women felt that uh, the 14th Amendment was a great betrayal. Uh, the suffragettes, as they were called, the women's rights activists. They were abolitionists, had been abolitionists. Uh, but when the 14th Amendment was adopted, it had language in, in it. Section three of the 14th Amendment, for the first time, uh, mentions male, the words male, uh, gender, sex. Uh, and they thought that was a tremendous betrayal. Uh, and the fact that the 14th Amendment did not uh, wasn't interpreted as uh, applying to women in the same way that it did to African-Americans. And certainly uh, the 15th Amendment uh, betrayed women's rights. Uh, so when you think about Sojourner Truth, uh, you think about her famous speech, uh, you know, aren't I a woman too? Uh, you think about um, uh, Ida B. Wells, uh, she was a very powerful advocate uh, for women's rights as well as uh, the rights of African-Americans. Um, uh, when you think about uh, these women from that era, they were before their times in many respects. Uh, and uh, these were some of the great uh, Black Americans, but uh, some of the great Americans, uh, period. Uh, I think when we think about them, we should also think about uh, the second founding or another founding mm -hmm. as the country moved toward a more perfect union. You've used the phrase second founding uh, several times, and thank you for reminding us that, like Frederick Douglass, these great women, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, and Ida B. Wells were second founders as well. Judge McKee, what can you tell us about Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells, and Sojourner Truth? One thing that jumps out at me is the all of these people we're talking about, the incredible courage um, that they had. But it, I, when I think of the word courage, as courageous as people like Frederick Douglass were by coming out publicly as he did and revealing himself as a, a former slave, he obviously risked being um, captured back into slavery until there came a time when his slavery was purchased by a group of supporters in England, and he could return to the United States after a trip to England um, as a freed person. But clearly before that, he risked uh, his liberty, really, by coming out and revealing himself as a former slave and revealing the name of his former slave master, who then had license under the Future Slave Act to come and re return him to slavery. But in terms of, of courage, Harriet Tubman is someone who escaped slavery for herself and rather than being content with her newfound freedom, and I'll put freedom in quotation marks because the freedom that was the reality for black folks back then is not what we would call today free by any means, given the fear, the intimidation, the Jim Crow um, uh, regime, the domestic terrorism that was the law of the land in, in many places. She went back into the South, back below the Mason-Dixon line, and helped uh, hundreds of uh, slaves escaped back into freedom by bringing, into, uh, bringing them to the North with the passage of the Freedom, Freedom Fugitive Slave Act, which meant they were no longer slaves in the North. She then um, engaged herself in helping them go further North into Canada. And she did all this, uh, obviously under cloak of darkness uh, in secret. There's one story that I read recently of uh, her stealing herself, sneaking into slave auction in Baltimore, Maryland. And when the auctioneer took a break, she then <laughs> went to where the slaves were being held and took them from the pen and got them to Canada. And when the auctioneer came back to auction off the slaves, he realized, well, damn, the slaves are gone. But one thing I do want to read to you, and it's a letter. I'm actually not sure if this was a letter or a statement that Frederick Douglass made to Harriet Tubman, recognizing her courage. And I'll just take a few seconds to read this. The difference between us is very marked. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in public, and I have received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. 
I have wrought in the day, you in the night. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witnesses of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Excepting John Brown of sacred memory, I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have. And and I think that says it better than that I possibly could. She did meet, I know at least once, and I think twice, Harriet Tubman met with John Brown. I believe she met with him a few months before he embarked upon his military mission at uh, at Harper's Ferry. And, and I'm not sure to what extent she was involved in the planning of that, but I know she did meet with him, as did Frederick Douglass. And and Douglass, actually, Brown, John Brown tried to recruit Frederick Douglass into that mission at Harper's Ferry. Um, Frederick Douglass thought that Brown's um, ambition was a bit too ambitious. He he think, he think thought that um, Brown was underestimating the ease with which he could raise a slave army to take up arms against the slave masters. And he, he basically wished John Brown well, but wanted to have nothing to do with it. And thereafter, I believe he actually took a trip which had been pre-planned to Europe because he was afraid that he would be accused of being a co-conspirator if it would have become known that he had met with John Brown and discussed his raid at Harper's Ferry. And one quick thing in terms of um, Ida B. Wells, it shows us how early, how important the First Amendment was. Uh, her incredibly courageous reporting of lynchings that was not covered by the white press at all uh, brought to bear and brought to light the kind of terrorism that inflicted the lives of so many people uh, in various parts of this country by documenting lynchings soon after they happened and making people aware of it. It could not be done in secret uh, anymore. And her courage also was tremendous. Her um, house was burned to the ground, I believe, at one point, her, um, where she published her newspapers, at least one of her newspapers, she published several of them, was also burned to the ground. And of course, her life was constantly under threat. Thank you so much for that and for reading that incredibly moving passage. Uh, Professor Shaw, any uh, final thoughts on uh, Frederick Douglass and, and those great women in the Reconstruction period? And then I want to move forward to the period known as redemption, the backlash against Reconstruction, which led to the evisceration of the promise of the Reconstruction Amendments and the rise of such great figures as W.E.B. Du Bois, a founder of the NAACP and great scholar and author, as well as uh, some less known but equally heroic figures like Monroe Trotter, who thought that Du Bois and others didn't go far enough in advocating for equal rights. Tell us about them. Yes, well, I I wanted to just quickly uh, underscore that Harriet Tubman, uh, a woman, actually fought in the Civil War um, uh, and had a commission. uh, but I also wanted to share that powerful quote uh, attributed to her. If you are tired, keep going. If you are scared, keep going. If you are hungry, keep going. If you want to taste freedom, keep going. This is what he, what she said, rather, to uh, those she brought out of slavery when they were flagging and doubted whether they could uh, successfully uh, escape. Um, uh, so I wanted to mention that. Um, uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, one of the great Americans. It's really a shame that uh, all Americans don't know who he was. He was born uh, in the year that the 14th Amendment was actually ratified, if I remember correctly, in 1868. And he died literally on the eve of the Great March on Washington. Uh, he died as a, uh, an expatriate. Um, in Ghana. Uh, And over the span of his life, uh, his ideologies uh, grew and developed and changed. Um, He was a great historian, a great sociologist, uh, 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 an integrationist. You mentioned the founder of the NAACP. Uh, But he also, at various points, was somebody who uh, adopted uh, communist ideology when communism wasn't what it became uh, later on. Um, And he was a Pan-Africanist. So this was one of the great intellectual thinkers uh, in American history and and one of the great writers. He wrote uh, 
Black Reconstruction in America, as well as the souls of Black folks. And I could go on and mention uh, Darkwater, uh, many of his great works. Uh, and he was also famously uh, known for his uh, intellectual battles with uh, Booker T. Washington, uh, who in his time uh, was, if not the most famous, one of the most famous African-Americans. And so we could say a great deal about W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, uh, and uh, he didn't grow up in the South. Uh, he grew up in Massachusetts, uh, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Didn't come from that uh, slavery uh, tradition, uh, but was one of the great leaders uh, of African Americans in this country. Judge McGee, you told me that you were uh, setting out to reread the souls of Black folks and have inspired me to uh, do the same. And you also wanted to talk, in addition to Du Bois, about Monroe Trotter, who was a less well-known but also very important hero of the time. Tell us about Du Bois and Trotter. Yeah, you know, in many ways, the the relationship between and the tension between Du Bois and Trotter reflects a relationship and tension that is more familiar to most folks, and that is between uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Trotter was someone, from, from the little bit I've read, Apparently, he was not only someone who was very, very, at least the term progressive, um, militant, uh, adversarial, whatever adjective you want to put, but it, it appears as though he was not the most tactful person uh, in the world. He was known to engender conflict not only amongst his antagonists, but also uh, with people who were allied with him. Um, interesting, in 1912, he actually supported <clears throat> against um, the feelings of W. Du Bois, he supported Woodrow Wilson for president, which is ironic because Wilson became one of the great segregationist presidents, segregated the workforce in Washington, D.C. after he became president. But uh, Wilson met with Trotter before the election and made what was later described some vague uh, gestures toward equality for, for black folks. And Trotter um, believed that. Uh, at least he felt that that was better than he was getting from the other side, when Wilson then, um, I guess you could use the term with no pun intended, went south and was convinced by Democrats in the south that he, or Wilson, had to um, become much more ardent in, in racial matters and he ended up segregating the federal work service. Trotter met with Wilson twice, actually, in the, in the White House to try to dissuade him from the course he had taken. The second time he met with Wilson, apparently erupted into a shouting match uh, Wilson ordered him to leave. Uh, Trotter left, and the two were in not very good terms after that. Trotter was involved with the boys in the formation of the Niagara Movement, and after that, the NAACP, which the Niagara Movement kind of evolved uh, into, uh, as was, I think, Ida B. Walls was also involved in that movement. I'm not as certain as that, and Professor Walls might be able to help me with that. <clears throat> but the relationship between the boys and Trotter became so stressed that Trotter eventually left the NAACP, formed a parallel uh, organization. Um, and there was never after that uh, the same working relationship or collegiality between Du Bois and Trotter. And the reason Trotter left was he thought Du Bois was not militant enough. He was just not <clears throat> pushing enough. Trotter was much more outspoken in the critique of um, Booker T. Washington, who was kind of, I guess, known as the white person's Negro back then. Um, Du Bois was also very critical of, of Washington, but he wasn't as acerbic in that criticism as Trotter was. From what I can tell, Trotter was just generally acerbic in his criticism of anybody whose who's, uh, philosophy he, um, he disagreed with. He had several conflicts with Washington. Uh, one of them actually broke out into what was called, I think, the Boston Riot, when people who had assembled to hear Booker T. Washington um, give a speech and supporters of, of Monroe Trotter in the crowd began um, shouting at one another. There was a pushing and shoving match. Trotter was there, but apparently was not involved in provoking that that um, that match. Um, but he is someone who is very important because I think he kept folks' eye on the ultimate prize, and he never let people become too easy with the idea of just getting comfortable with, with the little bit of progress that was afforded us. Um, the organization that he formed after the NAACP was the NERL, and I think it was the National League 
equality of recognition league. I'm not sure that I'd have to look that up. Um, and it was meant as a counterweight to the NAACP to try to push the NAACP further and to move our agenda further. And, and we'll talk about this shortly, I guess, with Malcolm and with uh, Dr. King. But the parallels are very, very real, real there. And I think that in large part, folks like Manoj Trotter and certainly people like Malcolm X don't get the credit they could because it was their activism, activism and their pushing, which I really think advanced the ball, even though they may have come into a great deal of criticism both inside and outside of the the black community, they they held folks' feet to the fire, and they were not willing to compromise, perhaps at times when they should have compromised. But their being not willing to compromise really did force folks to kind of keep their eye on the on the moral and um, uh, equality ball, if you will, and keep trying to advance the ball. Thank you for reminding us of the importance of that tension between Du Bois and Trotter in, as you say, advancing the ball. Well, uh, so much of our discussion is now uh, interlinked with the history of the NAACP, and we now turn to the foundation of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, which you led with such distinction. Professor Shaw, I want to ask you about Thurgood Marshall, your predecessor there, and his contribution. How was the LDF founded, and what was Marshall's role? And then, if if you like, uh, in this round, maybe introduce also the important role of Pauli Murray, who Thurgood Marshall uh, called uh, uh, the Bible of the civil rights movement, referring to her book *States, Law, and Race and Color*. And she was the co-founder of the National Organization for Women. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg named her as a co-author of one of her important briefs. So, tell us about Thurgood Marshall and Pauli Murray. Uh, as best as I can, uh, because uh, that's a, a, a mouthful to tell. Uh, I, I think one of the starting places, and there are a number of them, um, should be a memorandum that was done. Uh, it had a very innocuous uh, title, uh, but uh, it was called for short the Margold Memorandum. Nathan Margold, a white Jewish lawyer who uh, was connected to the NAACP, and he uh, he had a uh, a a plan uh, that he wanted to put into play uh, that uh, eventually was one of the blueprints for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Although the lawyer who we really should think about as uh, the uh, the father, so to speak, of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, is someone that most Americans don't know about and, and should. Uh, one of the greatest lawyers uh, in American history, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and that was Charles Hamilton Houston. Uh, in the 1920s, a Harvard Law graduate uh, and uh, a lawyer who went into private practice, um, and at the same time, uh, began to teach at a night law school in Washington, D.C., where he would eventually become dean and turn it into a full-time uh, law school. And he mentored law students there and turned ha uh, Howard Law School into a, uh, a factory uh, for civil rights lawyers. His most famous mentee was, of course, Thurgood Marshall, uh, number one in his class in, I think, 1933, uh, second in his class uh, was a lawyer from uh, Virginia, Oliver Hill, who would go on to uh, litigate and argue uh, the Virginia Brown case, uh, and many other lawyers. Uh, this lawyer, uh, the Charles Houston, was brilliant, and he conceived of a strategy to attack uh, the separate but equal doctrine that the Supreme Court enunciated in Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, somewhere in that same time period came along Pauli Murray. Pauli Murray, who uh, has, hasn't gotten a fraction of the credit she deserves for being one of the, uh, one of the intellectual powers behind uh, the Brown strategy. And that's why Thurgood Marshall referred to her as you referenced 
um, as uh, one of the great thinkers and strategists for the NAACP to whom he had to give uh, credit and to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, uh, Paulie Murray uh, was uh, an enormously complex uh, individual. Uh, she applied to the law school uh, where I teach now, UNC Law School. She was denied admission because she was a woman. Uh, uh, she was, uh, she lived in New York uh, for some time there and studied in New York at Barnard and uh, she was absolutely brilliant. Um, she was also uh, a, uh, one of the first uh, openly LGBT uh, uh, advocates in many ways. And ladies in her life, she would become the first woman uh, to, uh, to be a priest in the Episcopalian church. Uh, Pauli Murray was uh, one of the, the great strategists, one of the great uh, legal thinkers, great legal minds. And really, it, it, it would be wonderful if more Americans would read uh, about her work and understand who and what she was uh, there are a number of good biographies that have been written in recent years and over in Durham, right next door to where I am in Chapel Hill. Uh, they've taken one of the houses that she lived in for a while and turned that into uh, a Paulie Murray Center uh, that once we get past this pandemic, I hope many people go and visit. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for inspiring all of us to learn more about the great legacy of Pauli Murray and also teaching us about the close relationship between her and Thurgood Marshall as both worked on the strategy that would transform the Constitution and fulfill the promise of the Reconstruction Amendments in Brown v. Board. Judge McKee, uh, tell us more, please, about Marshall's strategy. As, as a judge, how does that strategy of incrementalism uh, appear to you, his decision to begin with the less controversial cases and, and move up to uh, public schools and also tell us about uh, the contribution of Pauli Murray. I think the strategy is, is brilliant. I think at the time, it's probably the only path that would have gotten us anywhere. Um, one thing that I think Pauli Murray is in, in uh, the press alluded to, it, it does not get enough credit for. Early on, she focused not just upon um, racial bias, <clears throat> but on gender bias. She began to advocate that the 14th Amendment be its uh, equal protection clause include not just race but also gender, and it was her advocacy of trying to take it head on and not go indirectly uh, that got uh, the Brown um, uh, course in, in in litigation strategy to where it was. Uh, what was argued in Brown versus Board of Education by Thurgood Marshall was that the historic constitutional concept of separate but equal, which had been used to try to say that the Equal Protection Clause did not guarantee um, um, equality, legal equality with uh, the races, was to simply say it doesn't require integration as long as you have separate facilities that are equal. That's as much equality as you get under the Equal Protection Clause. And the theory had been to look at the contrasting uh, facilities that were black only or the uh, black folks were relegated to, and the white um, 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 auspices, the white facilities, and to argue, well, look, they're not, they're not equal. So the attack would not be to say, you can't have a separate black law school and a separate white law school under the 14th Amendment if you're a state institution. It would be to say, look at what this black school looks like. And in the cases, there were pictures of the libraries and the black schools and the libraries and the white schools, and it was a joke by comparison. And the Supreme Court did become increasingly over time more stringent in looking at the difference between um, facilities and saying, look, if you're going to have separate uh, facilities, they do have to be equal. This is not equal. And to move them toward a greater physical equality. It was Paulie Murray who began to say, what we have got to do is say, look, the 14th Amendment requires um, equality in the sense of no Segregation, that's what it means. It doesn't mean we can be separate but equal. It simply means that we must have the same facility, not the same equality of separate facilities. And it was her work in uh, terms of gender and in, in arguing that 
the Equal Protection Clause included uh, gender and prohibited gender bias, that Ruth Gator, uh, Bader Ginsburg, and you alluded to this uh, earlier, Jeff, and you're saying that Ginsburg credited her for this. In the case called Reed versus Reed, which Ginsburg, Ginsburg litigated, which was the Supreme Court's case, which held that, yes, the 14th Amendment uh, Equal Protection Clause does include protection against gender discrimination as well as racial discrimination. She actually cited Pauli, um, uh, Murray on the brief, although she didn't write the brief, but she was, Ginsburg was so impressed by Pauli's, uh, I'm sorry, Murray's work in that area that she credited her, credited her for it on the, um, on the brief. One thing, this is, in looking into this before our presentation today, this is so, what I've come to know and appreciate of her, so, uh, priceless and so typical. She graduated first in her class from uh, Howard University Law School, and it had been the uh, tradition of Harvard University to accept the first graduate from Howard University uh, into, I'm sorry, she graduated undergraduate um, uh, from Howard University. Harvard had a policy of accepting the person who graduated first in her class uh, and giving them a uh, Rosenwald Fellowship for graduate work at Harvard. However, they did not extend that privilege to Polly Murray because she was a woman, and they wrote and told her, yes, you're first in your class at Howard, and we have this policy of extending our graduate fellowships at Harvard to the person who was first in the class at Howard, but we don't accept women. She wrote back, and uh, she said in response, I would gladly change my sex to meet your requirements, but since the way to such change has not yet been revealed to me, I have no recourse but to appeal to you to change your minds. Uh, are you to tell me that one is as difficult as the other? <laughs> I think it's just one, one, one of those priceless bits of, of barbed sarcasm and wit that is, is just its so precious. And I can't imagine what the... Uh, the uh, intellectual blue bloods at Harvard University would have thought when they <laughs> when they received this letter from this insolent kid, uh, this black kid at Harvard University. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for finding Pauli Murray's inspiring retort. We turn now to our final pairing, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. It is difficult to do justice to these two great giants, but I'm going to ask you each to distill the essence of their constitutional legacy. Professor Shaw, what can you tell we, the people, listeners, about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X? Well, uh, they were two very different men who, in some ways, embodied uh, the two major uh, pieces of the struggle for uh, freedom and equality for Black Americans. Uh, Martin Luther King, a Southerner, uh, Southern, not only a Southerner, but a Southern Baptist preacher, uh, Martin Luther King, who uh, at the age of 26 was chosen to lead the Montgomery bus boycott uh, and uh, believed in the principles of nonviolence uh, and uh, became uh, the person who, uh, in hindsight, and I stress, I underscore in hindsight, many Americans came to think about as the leader of the civil rights movement. Uh, I say in hindsight because uh, there was a lot of tension between a number of people who were uh, in leadership roles in the civil rights movement. Not everybody believed in Martin Luther King's philosophy of nonviolence uh, and also institutions and individuals have egos. That was true of the NAACP as uh, led by uh, Roy Wilkins and before that, Walter White. Uh, and then along comes the Southern Christian Leadership Con Conference with uh, Martin Luther King at its helm. Uh, there were tensions. Uh, and certainly with respect to uh, uh, Malcolm X, El Haj, Malik Shabazz, who uh, came out of a different um, historical context. His father had been a Garveyite. His father was killed, um, uh, and that was allegedly by white supremacy. Uh, Malcolm X came out of the Nation of Islam, uh, which he entered while he was uh, incarcerated. At one point, he was uh, uh, running drugs, selling drugs. He was a pimp, a uh, hustler, as his autobiography said. Uh, but 
the nation of Islam caught him while he was imprisoned and turned his life around. He began to read and think, uh, but he did not believe in nonviolence and he was very critical of Martin Luther King's uh, nonviolent movement. Uh, there's a wonderful photograph that I'm sure you know all of us here have seen and many of the listeners have seen, I hope, of Malcolm and Martin. They met at one time, only one time. Uh, and it's a wonderful photograph. They're laughing and clasping hands, smiling. Uh, uh, and uh, Malcolm is reported to have said that he wanted white Americans to understand uh, who he was and uh, see him as the alternative to Martin Luther King if they did not uh, uh, support Martin Luther King's approach, but he was also critical of that approach. Uh, one can only guess what would have happened if uh, both of them had lived, whether they would have converged. Some people think they would have, uh, but they were powerful leaders. Malcolm X was about pride, uh, uh, in African-Americans for being Black. So was Martin Luther King. But Martin Luther King was also about uh, a nonviolent movement uh, to change the, to win the souls really of white Americans. Malcolm, I think, questioned about, I uh, had a question of whether those souls were either uh, winnable or whether they were there at all. Uh, but two great leaders, both of them tragically cut down, both at the age of 39, and uh, two of the great heroes uh, of African-Americans. Thank you for those inspiring thoughts. Judge McKee, you introduced the pairing of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. You said it was prefigured by the tensions between Du Bois and Trotter. Tell us about the pairing of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Well, as the professor mentioned, Malcolm was someone who went through a, a very substantial personal introspective evolution. And he went from a position from which he was actually best known and became famous of being an ardent segregationist, of advocating that black folks have their own black communities, that integration was wrong, <clears throat> that we were wrong to try to uh, integrate. He went from that position true position, and it arose in large part, if not totally, because of his Muslim faith and a pilgrimage that he took to Mecca, where he saw all different shades and hues and races of people blending together harmoniously. And he began to uh, reassess the teachings he had gotten from the nation of Islam, that all white people are devils and evils, and you can't attempt to live with these people. You need to get away from them. And he believe it's, he said as much in one of his uh, speeches. And when he came back from that um, pilgrimage, he was a very, very different person. He broke broke openly from the nation of Islam and uh, Elijah Muhammad. That tension had been brewing um, uh, up to then because Malcolm found out some things about Elijah Muhammad, which made Malcolm question the sincerity of Elijah Muhammad and whether or not this religious religion that he'd been taught was really as pure and sincere as he'd been led to believe. But seeing people of all the different hues coming together, um, really crystallized it. And he took on a position uh, which actually began, I think, to parallel where Malcolm was going, of economic independence. So it wasn't so much having um, separate facilities and growing our own communities, but that we had to conserve and control our own dollars and our own economies. And in that sense, there was a separatism, although I didn't think about that until just now, that continued uh, in his evolution. And in that sense, he wasn't that much different from where Malcolm was when he began talking about the war on poverty and the poor people's campaign that he was leading when he was so tragically <clears throat> gunned down. And they both thought that the way to obtain true equality in the sense of equal rights was to control uh, our own communities, but in, in a kind of a different way, that economic independence was necessary. Malcolm would have put it in terms of probably, I hope this is not unfair, freedom from hunger, freedom from poverty. Malcolm may have put it more in terms of economic independence. It may or may not come down to the same thing. And that, I think, is similar. And if I can go back one second to, um, <clears throat> to Manuel Trotter, one of the tensions with Trotter and, and some of the other folks in the NAACP is the role that white folks would have within the NAACP. Trotter was very upset 
about white people being in positions of leadership within the NAACP. Malcolm was upset about the extent to which he saw white folks being in the position of leadership in civil rights organizations. And I was in college in the 60s, and this played out on college campuses with student groups. There was an awful lot of debate about what role, if any, um, whites should have within um, the civil rights movement. Um, to a lesser extent, the roles that women should have, and that went back to the discussions with Frederick Douglass and, and I.B. Walls, where they saw a common vision there in terms of the role of women in um, suffrage organizations and in, in the civil rights movement. I don't think you can underestimate the importance of Malcolm, especially in the North and urban areas and amongst uh, younger folks, adolescents, young um, young folks. King's real authority, and this is not, this is an overstatement, and in that sense it's inaccurate. His real popularity and authority arose from the work they did and the affinity he felt with the more rural southern folks whose uh, liberation he was working to obtain. But ironically, he did make a statement when he led our open housing march into Skokie, Illinois, that the hostility and the vitriol that greeted him marching in Illinois to open up the housing was more violent and more vicious than anything he encountered in Birmingham or Montgomery or, or, the, or the Deep South. So he certainly, in that sense, he had a force in uh, the North too. But Malcolm was able to reach a, a group of folks uh, and basically, I think, um, I don't say militarize them, but get them to deal with their own blackness and their own powerlessness in a way that Malcolm was simply not able to because the messages were so very different. And Malcolm's background that the professor mentioned was a background that allowed him to be able to reach a group of folks that did not have the same common thread um, with, with Malcolm. He was an amazing speaker. I heard him speak in a church uh, it was a church, not a mosque, a week before he was assassinated. And I, I cannot remember that much of what he said, but I walked away from that being just absolutely awestruck by the message in, in, in the way he conveyed it. He was an amazing orator, as was King, but in very, very different ways. Wow, what a remarkable privilege to have had that experience. Well, it is time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. Uh, which I know will inspire we, the people listeners, to read and learn more about all the great figures we've talked about. I'll just close by asking each of you if you had to recommend a single work of the figures we've talked about, an autobiography or a collection of speeches, what would it be, Professor Shaw? Well, I'm going to take an easy out with respect to Martin Luther King in answering that question. There's a single volume uh, of his writings and speeches called The Testament of Hope, uh, if you can only read one volume. Uh, but there's also, uh, so far, seven volumes of the Martin Luther King papers that are being published uh, um, uh, out of uh, Stanford. And uh, I think there's, uh, there's so much in there. It's a rich treasure trove uh, because King isn't the... Uh, you know, he isn't as, as simple as most Americans uh, have been taught to think that um, he was. His legacy is very varied and complex. There are two um, uh, works, more recent works. We've, of course, always known about the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, co-written with uh, Alex Haley. Marin Marable of Columbia University did another biography of Malcolm X, um, uh, he passed several years ago, uh, but just recently, uh, Les uh, Payne, uh, a journalist in New York, has also published a new uh, biography of Malcolm X that's really worth reading. Great. Thank you so much for both of those recommendations. Uh, Judge McKee, last uh, word to you. What autobiography or collection of speeches or writings would you recommend to We the People listeners? Well, certainly as to, to Malcolm Les Payne's work, um, I'd, I'd strongly uh, recommend. Um, also his speeches, which are, I'm pretty sure they're available probably uh, online, maybe even via YouTube, I'm, I'm not sure. His balance of the bullet speech is remarkable, um, especially now when we, we're in an age of disenfranchisement and some of the tension and fervor that's rising around that. He gave that speech before 
he went to Mecca, and while he was um, with the Nation of Islam, uh, so it doesn't capture the entirety of Malcolm, but I don't think any one work would, with the possible exception of the books that um, the professor um, has mentioned. There's a new book out, and I can't remember the name of the book now, or the author, because I haven't read it yet, but I just heard from a friend of mine who's a scholar and historian that this book was out. This new biography of Monroe Trotter that should be pretty easy to, to track down, and as soon as I get some time, I'm going to make it my business uh, to track it down. Pauline Murray has several books. The one that was mentioned earlier by the professor in terms of the um, the history of states' laws on, on racism is out in paperback. I tried to find it not too long ago. Um, it's not available on Kindle or in a hardcover, but it is uh, available. Frederick Douglass, certainly the life and times of Frederick Douglass, his own autobiography, and some of the things that came out after that. I think two or three books were published after um, after he died. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Professor Ted Sean, Judge Ted McKee, for an inspiring discussion of these great African-American constitutional visionaries. Thank you for the reading recommendations, for inspiring all of us to learn more and to grow in wisdom and understanding by familiarizing ourselves with the heroic struggles of these great Americans. Professor Shaw, Judge McKee, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts, and it was produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts, and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly and timely dose of constitutional debate. And always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired to learn by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.